Our message today is entitled, The Business of the Church. And this is a thought that's been resonating in my mind over the past few weeks. What is it that we are to do as a congregation? What is it that the church is to do in the world? What is, you might say, the work of the church in the world? You might put it in another way even. What is the church's goal or mission in the world? What is the mission of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Now, again, this is an appropriate subject for us because six Lord's Days, we were not able to gather together as the church because a terrible pandemic has entered our land, and it threatens lives. It threatens those that are immunocompromised. It threatens the aged, and we love those in our congregation so much that we voluntarily stayed home and listened to messages instead but this is so very crucial to us because we are the Lord's church, and for six Lord's days, our Lord's day was spent at home, and even now we're not meeting in a way that we're accustomed to meeting. Now, as a word up front, as we begin thinking about church and what it means, the church is a people. The church is a people. People often think of churches as buildings, and they'll say that this is a a 2,000-year-old church, or excuse me, a 200-year-old church building that people meet in and used to meet in, and today it stands as a memorial. But this building behind me, or any other building where people have ever met in, that is not a church. Up at Burrup Museum, there's an old white wood frame building that sometimes Sacred Heart services are held in, and it's often referred to the old church up at Burrup. But that isn't a church anymore, and it, in fact, was never a church. It was a church building. A church is a group of people. You, beloved, are the church at Flint River, or the church at Liberty, or the church at Briar Fork. You are the Lord's church. And so the church, just as a word up front, is a people. The church is, an, in a sense, an organization. As we look at the collective assemblies of the Lord as they are scattered throughout the globe, the church is an organization. The church is also a local assembly. We have in the Bible the church at Ephesus. We have the church at Thyatira, the church at Laodicea, the church at Corinth. We have the churches of Galatia. Here we have that meet in this building behind me, the church at Flint River, Flint River Primitive Baptist Church. You are the church. The church is so much more than just a collective group of people that meet. The church is a body, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, and I think this is something that has been made very evident to us today, as we have gone so long without seeing one another, the church is a family. Do you feel yourself to be a family with these people here today? Isn't it so good to warm your heart to see your family Many of you know that last weekend our oldest son, Ethan, was married, and we hadn't seen my brother, we hadn't seen my mom and my dad since, for me, mid-February. One of the last normal things we did as a family, Elijah was in a district honor band concert, and it's amazing at how different life looks now than it looked then. And we went to that concert, all, to, all of us, me and mom and dad and, and all of our family. It had been so long since we'd seen our natural family. I think that's the way our hearts feel today as we see one another. And we can't go up and hug one another. Primitive Baptists love to hug, right? If you can't say amen, honk, we love to hug, right? Nobody wants to hug because no, there we go. 
All right. We, we love to hug one another. We love to shake each other's hands. And we can't do that right now, but we can at least see each other, our family, in the Lord Jesus Christ. This word church translates from a Greek word that comes into our language in the King James Bible as church, but originally the word meant assembly. And so by definition, the church is an assembly. It is intended to assemble. Now that was the clock that fell off the podium, so nobody gets scared. I'm going to pick it up, right? You know me, and you know I need a clock. So the church is an assembly that tells us that to be church, the way Jesus intends church to be, we have to do what with one another? We have to assemble. We have to come together. Now, this points to, because we have churches, individual churches all around the world that obviously are not assembling one with another today. We have individual church bodies. But this word church points to a day when every single child of God, the entire body of Christ, from Abel all the way to the last child of God who has ever lived, every person that belongs to the Lord Jesus will be gathered together with Jesus for all eternity. And so even the word church conveys an assembly, and there's coming a day when that last assembly will be gathered around her Lord, and we will be with God for all of eternity. But here in the world, this assembly exists in little congregations, and maybe not so little congregations, here and there scattered around this world, witnesses of the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, an appropriate passage, 1 Timothy chapter 3 rather, if I tarry long that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. Now this word church again translates from a word that means assembly, but in the English language the word comes from an old English word, kirk, and the word kirk is defined as and means the Lord's house. And we can find this demonstrated very clearly in this passage, why we use this word. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the assembly, is the house of God, the pillar and ground of the truth. As we think about the business of the church today, we begin by saying that the church is to uphold and defend God's truth. Or as Jude wrote in the book of Jude, to earnestly contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. I think in our present day and age, there's an even great controversy over what is truth. I believe that was one of the things that Pilate asks as Jesus is before him. What is truth? How do you identify truth? What makes up that which is true? Don't we wish we knew the truth today? The truth about this virus. The truth about how long it's going to be in our world. The truth about it is danger. And there are many different opinions on that. If you ask two people, you might get five opinions. But there's one thing in the world that we know is true. We know that God rules and reigns. We know that Jesus is His Son, the second person of the Godhead. We know that Jesus was crucified, that He rose again, that He ascended to glory, that He is seated on the right hand of God, that He's coming back to destroy this world to deliver us, and so shall we ever be with the Lord. And that is the truth that the church is the pillar and ground of, the institution established by God himself 
to preserve and uphold the gospel of Christ in the world. The church is an organization that is as a foundational principle to uphold and lift up and defend the truth. Also, as we think about the goal, the mission, the work of the church, the business of the church in the world, I'll say that everything the church does as individual members and everything the church does as a collective is to glorify the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul wrote in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that whatever we do, anything that we do, whether we eat, whether we drink, whatsoever we do, do all to the glory of God. Now this is a principle that applies to worship, but it goes so beyond worship into the everyday life of the disciple of Christ. As disciples, we are to do everything to his glory. If you're enjoying a movie with your family, do that to the glory of God, which tells us that there's some movies you probably shouldn't watch. If you're taking a walk with your wife, you do it to the glory of God. If you take a wife, do it to the glory of God. As you live your life with your wife and your children, you do that to the glory of God. All that we do, we do to the glory of God. As we come together today, I hope and I pray that this glorifies God. What does it mean to glorify God? We did a live stream on this recently on Wednesday nights, and the word glory in the New Testament comes from a Greek word that conveys glowing and brightness and splendor. But to glorify means to honor. It means to praise. It means to worship. I pray today, as every person drives down Moontown Road and they see this grass lot and this asphalt parking lot full of cars, I pray that it glorifies God. Let this be to the glory of God and everything we do as we sing along to the hymns, as we bow our heads in prayer, and as we hear a message from God's word that we do everything to the glory of God, we exist to glorify God. One of the famous statements in Christianity, you find it in catechisms and all kinds of old writings, is that the chief end of man is to glorify God. And that's something that you can teach your children. You can memorize it. You can remember it. The chief end of man is to glorify God. Little children, what is your purpose in this life? Teenagers, you're sorting your life out. You don't know what your life is going to be. You're struggling with your identity. Who are you? What are you going to do in this world? You exist to glorify God. And whether we're collective or we're at home, everything that we are to do is to be to the glory of God. Now, as individuals, we want to share with you three points today as we present these thoughts on the business of the church. As individuals, what does God expect of us? I'm going to take you back to the Old Testament for just a moment in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 12. Now, you know that Solomon wrote three books of the Bible. Solomon is the son of David. He was the wisest man who ever lived. He was the king of the nation of Israel. Solomon had problems in his life. He was not a perfect man. And we trust that he was a holy man because the word of God says that Scripture was written when holy men spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. He was a very flawed man. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and you have three books of Solomon. Proverbs, that gives you the wisdom that Solomon had. Song of Solomon, which speaks of the love between a husband and a wife, which can be a beautiful picture of the love of Jesus and his church. 
We have the book of Ecclesiastes, and it's believed that it was written near the end of Solomon's life. A scarred man, a man who had suffered many disappointments, a man who was, for lack of a better term, perhaps probably cynical and calloused as he comes to the close of his life. Solomon writes the book of Ecclesiastes, and he speaks of ten vanities that he has discovered in this world. And I would encourage you to read the book of Ecclesiastes, but in this book you have warnings against many vanities, and the conclusion at the end of this is, Vanity of vanities, saith the preacher, all is vanity. And when we read about vanity, what, what do we have reference to? Do we have reference to looking in a mirror and liking how you look? Now the word vanity there means something that is in vain, something that is pointless. We recently spoke on the, re uh, the resurrection of Christ and the resurrection of our bodies at the end of time. And one of the things that Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is that if the dead rise not, then is Christ not raised? And if Christ is not raised, then your faith is what? Vain. What does that mean? It's pointless. It has no use. It has no purpose. It is for nothing. When Solomon says vanity... He says that everything in this world, everything that men pursue is pointless. There's no purpose in it. There's no benefit from it. And as you read through Ecclesiastes, I won't give you all ten, but just to list a few of them off, you have things like greed. You have things like wealth. We all think in America the more money we have, the happier we would be. And Solomon laments the fact that you can live like a miser and accumulate all the wealth that you want. And then one day you're going to die and you're going to be buried in the ground and everything, everything that you had in this world in a material sense will be left to someone else who will probably blow it. Solomon speaks about fame. Solomon speaks about wisdom. And all of these things that men love are nothing but vanity. And so he comes to the conclusion of this book and Chapter 11 gives you the point of it all, and he exhorts you young people to remember your Creator in the day of your youth, to worship God as you're young when you have strength, before the grinders are ground down. He has reference to teeth. Before the windows aren't open, he has reference to your vision. He refers to old age. And then he says, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. He gave good heed and sought out and set in order many proverbs. The preacher sought to find out acceptable words. And that which was written was upright, even words of truth. The words of the wise are as goads, as nails fastened by the masters of assemblies, which are given from one shepherd. And then he goes on to say, let us hear the conclusion of the matter. He says, I'm a preacher. I've sought out sound words. I've learned about everything there is to learn about in life. Here's the conclusion of the matter. Now, what is one conclusion of the matter? That everything this world values, fame, wealth, brilliant, academic, intellectual understanding, wisdom as you would call it, all of that is vanity. The conclusion of the matter, fear God and keep His commandments. Listen to this next statement. This is the whole duty of man. The whole duty of man. What it is that God expects of you, beloved, as the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, is to fear God and keep His commandments. Now, as we think about the whole duty of man, first of all, this is certainly a general principle to all 
who are living and breathing in the world today. God commands us to fear Him and to keep His commandments. Sometimes we mistakenly believe that God doesn't command even the wicked. Oh, God commands the wicked to stop from sinning. In fact, there is a hell that exists because the wicked do not honor Him. They do not obey His commandments. They will be judged according to their what in Revelation chapter 20? Works? Because they have rebelled against the God that made them. But if it applies to all men generally, you know that it applies to the church of the Lord Jesus Christ specifically. That we would walk in the fear of God and that we would obey His commandments. This word duty implies, in fact, it commands obligation. It is my obligation to fear God and keep His commandments. Now, as we think about fearing God, number one, what does it mean to fear God? It means that we have a reverence, a reverence as we think about Him, as we walk before Him. And we remind you that the book of Romans chapter 3 says that as it pertains to the natural man, the unregenerate, there is no fear of God before their eyes. The natural man rejects the commandments of God because the natural man doesn't fear God because the natural man is unregenerate. And so there is no fear of God before their eyes. And when God quickens you of His Spirit, when He gives you the divine nature, as you read in the book of Second Peter, as you're made partaker of the divine nature, as the fruit of the Spirit are now a part of your personality, Christ in you the hope of glory. As you're born again, the Spirit of God does testify within you, convict you of sins, reproves you for that which you do which is wrong. And you have a fear of God. From the inside, not a fear like Nineveh when they turned from their sin because they didn't want to be obliterated by pillars of fire, but you fear God the way a child reverences his parent. Now, there are two ways that a child reverences his parent. There is that sense of chastening where my children know, and it's amazing that the more children you have, the wiser they get earlier about this. I've seen the older ones get spanked enough times. I don't know if I can say that on a live stream or not, but I've seen the, the older ones get spanked enough times that I'm going to wise up, and if Dad says do or do not do, well, I'm not going to disobey him because I don't want to get in trouble. That's a lot harder with the oldest kids, and I know that, and if you're an oldest child, you know that too. You push the envelope, the youngest child wises up and usually doesn't get in as much trouble publicly. There is that sense of God is my father, and I'm going to fear him. I'm going to keep his commandments because I don't want to be chastened of him. But at the same time, when you love your parent, you hate to disappoint them, don't you? One of the saddest moments in my childhood, it happened every six weeks, was when I had to give my mother my report card. Every six weeks. See, I got grounded for C's. And every six weeks I was grounded because I was lazy. And the look on her face when I came home and handed her that report card and I had not done my job, that disappointment, that breaks your heart when you love your parent. That's also a sense in which we fear God. We fear disappointing Him because we love Him and we don't want to make Him ashamed of us. 
A person who fears God lives in a different way. And the more you walk in that fear and reverence, the more it affects you. Point number two, as an assembly, we are to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, as a group, we worship God, and we have come together today to do that. But according to the book of John chapter 4, God seeks such people to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Now, I'm going to hurry through this point for the sake of time because we're not going to keep you very long today because we're all outside. Praise God that you're here. And we know that we're not in the auditorium of the sanctuary with the air conditioner and comfortable pews and... You notice the only person that's in the sun is one of our deacons. We didn't do that to punish him, but um, we could all get a, get a little entertainment at, at his expense. He's sweating through the sermon. Deacons usually don't sweat through sermons, unless they're on deacons. In the book of John chapter 4, Jesus, we read, must needs go through Samaria. And that's an interesting statement because if you know anything about the climate between the Jews, which, you know, Jew is a term that had stemmed from Judah, Samaria was the northern kingdom, what had the northern kingdom had become. You know, after Solomon's day, we talked about Solomon a moment ago, there was a civil war because of Solomon's transgression. God wouldn't suffer his seed to rule over all 12 tribes of Israel, and there was a civil war. And the nation was split into two, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah and a portion of Benjamin was always more doctrinally sound. They had a mixture of good and bad kings. The northern kingdom never had good kings. Their religion was corrupted. And one of the things that you find is that in that northern kingdom, there was a, a mountain. And in that mountain, the children of Israel had built a temple to worship God in, and there's this great debate between the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom that existed all through these two peoples existing together side by side between where you're to go and worship. And so the Jesus goes through, and he enters into Samaria, into a city that is called Sychar. This is the Old Testament, Shechem. And so he enters into this place, and there comes a woman of Samaria to draw water. Now, I don't know about you, if you've noticed this, I certainly have. In our country today, people are very divided over what they believe. We're divided over what we believe about politics so many times. We're divided over what we believe about sports. I have a very divided congregation. I think half of you are Auburn fans, half of you are Alabama fans, and ever so often we even might have somebody pulling for a Tennessee or a Mississippi team here. Bless their hearts. Don't honk at that one. So... We know division in the world. What creates more division than differences of religion? What creates more division than differences in religion? Jesus begins speaking to this woman at the well, and she says, You say, the Jews say, that it is in the mountain of Samaria where people ought to worship and or excuse me, you say that in, in Jerusalem people ought to worship, and our forefathers said in the mountain of Samaria is the place where people ought to worship. What say you? It's, it's amazing that she goes straight to the controversy. 
If you're on social media, are people any different today? Not at all. We go straight to the controversy. There are wonderful things that we can all talk about and actually agree on that we might want to spend more time talking about than that which, with which we disagree. She goes directly to the controversy. Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. You say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Where do we ought to worship? You're a prophet. Let's get right to the argument. Now, Jesus says this, listen. Woman, believe me, the hour cometh and now is... The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. Ye worship ye know not what. Their worship was outside the bounds of orthodoxy and information and sound doctrine. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. In other words, Jews have orthodoxy, Samaritans do not. And because of this, when Jews had to pass from Galilee to Jerusalem, they took the long way around so as not to even pass through this region. There was great racial prejudice that existed between these two peoples. But the hour cometh and now is, listen to this, when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeketh such to worship Him. You don't read many things in the Word of God that God the Father seeks, do you? Jesus came to seek and save the lost. I read of a God who works his will among the army of heaven, the inhabitants of the earth. None can stay his hand and say unto him, What doest thou? And yet God the Father seeks people to worship him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. As an organization, part of the business of the church is to worship Him as a collective assembly in spirit and in truth. What does that mean in spirit and in truth? Well, you might be inclined to believe that it means through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's certainly true. But in spirit, if you notice the translators likely in your copy didn't capitalize the S in spirit because it's believed and I believe what this is teaching is that we worship Him from the depths of our spirit. Now, what would this be contrasted with? The worship of the nation of Israel. Jesus, quoting Isaiah, says that this people draweth nigh unto me with their lips. They paid lip service. But their hearts are far from me. They didn't worship him from the heart. And Jesus says that I want worship. The Father commands worship in spirit. And in truth, we worship Him from the core of our being. We mean it. We believe it. Oh, how worship is a premium in today's time. Do you miss lifting up your voices in worship? I sure do. I hope we're all brought to tears the first time we gather in that auditorium and we sing praises to God as one assembly. I hope we're moved to worship in spirit. Nothing like a little affliction to teach us things that we should have appreciated all along, right? Bliss comes through sore temptations, as one hymn says. But God also commands to be worshipped in truth, and it's the church's business to worship Him in truth. There's a true way to worship, according to thus saith the word of the Lord, and we don't feel authorized to depart from it, to detract from it, or to add to it. But we also want to worship Him according to the true gospel. We want to believe the truth. 
We want to contend for the faith once delivered to the saints. You might be wondering, why worship? Why worship? If you understand exactly what you were by nature and what God Almighty did for you, I don't know how we couldn't worship Him. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, God, who hath saved us, God saved us by the sending of His only begotten Son into the world to die for our sins. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He had no iniquity, no transgression of His own. He was perfect in every way. And he took upon him every single transgression of every single child of God from the beginning of time until the end. And he bore that sin on the cross and he suffered what we deserve to suffer, the wrath of God being forsaken by his father. His father turned his face from him. What a hideous thought. My perfect Lord being made to be my sin upon the cross of Calvary. He has saved us. And He has called us with a holy calling. God the Spirit, when you were dead in trespasses and in sins, did resurrect you from death and sin to life in Christ. The Spirit of God has entered into your heart crying, Abba, Father, you've been born of the Spirit of God. You are alive in Christ because the Spirit of God lives in you. We all enter into this world dead in trespasses and in sins. Every single one of us. We are conceived in sin and shaped in iniquity. And yet, even when we were dead in sin, by grace are you saved, according to the book of Ephesians chapter 2. We are His workmanship. By grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works. The Holy Spirit has resurrected our dead souls. He has called us from death and sin to life in Christ. And all this was according to his own purpose and grace, not our works, not the things that we've done, but His own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. Titus chapter 1 says that God promised eternal life. God that cannot lie promised eternal life before the world began. Ephesians chapter 1 says, according as He has chosen us in Him, before the foundation of the world, before the world began, God said, I love this person. And I choose them. I will save them. And an innumerable company of people out of every nation, kindred, and tongue who were his natural born enemies. And he saved us. And he called us. Now, I don't know about you, but if I know that God the Father chose me of all dirty, rotten, depraved, despicable sinners, and he sent his son to die for me, 
And the Holy Spirit has quickened me. I ought to spend the rest of my days worshiping Him in spirit and in truth because He deserves it, because it is right, because it is good. Praise the Lord, as the psalmist said, His mercy endureth forever. And lastly, as the business of the church today, I want to direct you to Matthew chapter 28. It is the responsibility of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, particularly her ministry, to go and to make disciples. Jesus says to his 11 disciples, you know that Judas Iscariot was a traitor and a betrayer, and Judas had hanged himself after the betrayal of Christ. The 11 remaining apostles went into Galilee, into a mountain where Jesus had appointed them, and when they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. Now let's focus on the last promise before the command. Christ is with us today. Are you afraid? God has not given us the spirit of fear. Now, please understand, we're not to tempt God. We're not to be reckless. The Bible commends caution. But beloved, we are not afraid. I am not afraid. Why? Because Jesus is with us. I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. But he commands us to go and to teach. The word teacher translates from the same word that disciple translates from. So what teach means is literally to go, it's a verb, make disciples. Now you heard me talk from 2 Timothy chapter 1 on how we're saved. We're saved because God the Father purposed it before the world began. His Son came into the world and died for us and the Spirit calls us from death to life. But we find those that have been called from death unto life. And we disciple them. What does the word disciple mean? It means a student. It is our business to disciple God's children. If we have to do it over a live stream, if we have to do it from the front porch of Flint River Primitive Baptist Church, if I have to come to your house and preach the word through your window, then you're going to be discipled. Now we want to make disciples and we want to train disciples. A disciple by definition is a learner. And this is a school from which we never graduate. Many of you have graduated high school. Quite a great number of you have graduated college, various levels of degree. But this is a school from which we never, ever graduate. We're a disciple, a student of the Lord Jesus all the remainder of our days. We go and we make disciples. We baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And by the way, if somebody wants to get baptized, somebody wants to get baptized, I will engage in civil disobedience. I will come within six feet of you. I will baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. And they can handcuff me and put me in jail, though I think they probably really wouldn't care. 
I'll baptize you. I'll baptize you. A disciple is to be made and then baptized, and then we continue to teach them to observe all things whatsoever he has commanded us. That's what we're doing here today. It's what we're doing through the live stream. It's what we've done for six weeks through the live stream, and every Sunday before then and Wednesday night, we continue to teach all that he has commanded us, and he is with us until the end of the world. And amen.